Due to the graphic nature of the personal accounts and content discussed in this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Many episodes will include graphic personal accounts and discussions of child sexual assault, domestic violence, physical abuse, rape, sexual situations, and suicide. to our third episode of Latter-day Survivors. In our last two episodes, we covered my story. And as we started this project together, we really wanted to start with our own stories so that as this progresses and we have more guests come on our podcast, everyone can know that both Kendra and I have gone through this. Um, We've both told our stories. We understand how vulnerable and how difficult it can be. We also wanted to work out some of the kinks as far as doing a podcast. Neither one of us have done this before. And we hope that as this goes along, that everybody can feel like the hosts of this program are in the same boat as those who come on as guests with us. So today we are going to be talking with Kendra It's April 6th, 2021, and we'd like to welcome Kendra. Thank you. I'm looking forward to sharing my story today. So Kendra, my story um, came out this year because my uncle took his own life in October, and that sort of is what has resurfaced my story. that we talked about in the last two episodes. And during this time, we've had a really hard time being able to speak out and talk about what happened to us until you and I uh, worked together on this platform to build a place where survivors can start telling their own stories. In my case, Uh, being able to say the words of what happened to me was something that was really important to me. And that's what I tried to convey in my episodes for my stories. And I know that in your story, this, this is something that you've talked about before as well. And your coming forward process is fairly recent too, as I understand it, right? Yes, I started... Coming forward with my story after my bishop at the time 
had approached me to talk to me about my stepdad wanting to be rebaptized. And his bishop had asked my bishop to ask me to write a letter to the First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to tell them how I felt about him being rebaptized. And that kind of started a domino effect for me. And that's a part of the story I'll tell a little bit more about later, but that's kind of where it started. Let's start at the beginning. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. I'm kind of like you, Dana, where I don't want my story of abuse to define me. Although it has definitely shaped who I am as a person, I am a fierce advocate for people, and I'm also a strong and independent woman, which I've learned isn't always welcome in Utah and can actually get you in a lot of trouble. I've learned how to be Wonder Woman in my life by both accomplishing a lot of things that I wanted to do, but also by avoiding my trauma. One of the tactics that my abuser used to keep me quiet was by telling me that I was a stupid little girl and that nobody would believe a stupid little girl. So I've proven to myself that I'm not stupid by going to school. And I just kept going. And I finished a doctoral degree in 2017 in nursing. It's a DNP, which stands for Doctor of Nursing Practice. So I'm a family nurse practitioner. I completed a bachelor's degree in nursing in 2007 and worked as a nurse in the ICU and the emergency room. I completed a master's degree in 2010 and then from 2012 to 2017 I worked as a nursing professor and I really enjoy teaching and I really enjoy learning. I've been married for 24 years. We have four adult children, one son-in-law, and I will be a grandma in June. I'm one of those people who a lot of people don't really understand my sense of humor, and I think also a lot of people don't really understand me until they get to know me, but I can tell you that my sense of humor is really built upon my dad was a Marine, my history of sexual abuse <clears throat> kind of creates this sarcasm in me. And then also being a nurse practitioner and a nurse for 13 years, you have to have a kind of a dark sense of humor to handle all the things that we see in the medical profession. So my sense of humor is kind of warped and I'm really sarcastic also, and so a lot of people don't really know how to handle me or take my sense of humor. And sometimes they don't know if I'm joking or if I'm being serious, which I actually think is really funny. Okay, so I also have ADD and PTSD. So I just remembered that this story is actually about my abuse and not about my nursing degree, and now I'm really feeling triggered. <laughs> uh, Kendra, are you self-diagnosing here? I thought we agreed that we weren't going to do that. <laughs> no, I really have ADD. And yes, I did take my medication today. Okay. Well, what do you think we 
get back to the story of your childhood. All right. Well, I guess I can start with uh, where we lived when I was little. Sure. Okay, now i got to get serious again in my storytelling mode. I was born in Sacramento, California in 1977. My parents were married. Uh, I have two brothers and one sister, and I'm the youngest. And we had a pool in the backyard. My mom um, didn't work uh, when they were first married. My dad is a Vietnam veteran and lost both of his legs in the Vietnam War. He has a purple heart and a bronze star, and he has PTSD. My dad's name is Rick Backman, and his great-grandfather was Johan or John Peter Backman. John Peter Backman's brother was Samuel Christian Backman, who was Robert Legrand Backman's great-grandfather. Robert Legrand Backman is the oldest living apostle in the LDS church right now. He just turned 99 years old. It's my understanding that the Backman family helped to settle Santa Quin, Utah. So as I was looking at my family history, I was looking at Eliza Babcock and figured out that she was my second great-grand-aunt. And she was married to Brigham Young secretly and that her dad didn't approve of the marriage. And she was married to him at the age of 16. And at that time, Brigham Young was 46 years old. And Eliza kept running home to her family after she was married to Brigham Young. And what I, what I thought about with this was that you were taught from a very young age that the Kimball family name was this name that was something to be proud of. I never heard about Eliza Babcock in my family, but yet she was married to Brigham Young. So it just made me think about this generational abuse that happens in the Mormon church because Eliza Babcock was not an honorable polygamist wife. She didn't want to be married to him. She kept running home to her family. And so that's kind of what I think about her as, that she just didn't, she didn't want to participate in this kind of behavior. So we didn't hear about her. I didn't hear about her. But she was 16 years old and she was married off or she was kidnapped by Brigham Young from her family. It just makes me really yeah. angry. You know, what's interesting about that is um, we talked about how I'm from Heber C. Kimball and his first wife, the late. Um, yeah. Lots of people talk about the fact that Helen Marr Kimball was Joseph Smith's youngest wife being 14 when she was married to Joseph Smith. And in my family, we had already we had always heard those stories, but nobody ever told us that she was 14. Right. Right. So anyway, that was my family history that I was never told when I was younger, and now I'm interested, but probably was something that they never wanted me to know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So if I could say something to Eliza today, I would tell her that the shame is not hers, that it belongs to Brigham. I guess I can stop having ADD now, huh? <laughs> 
I don't know if you can stop that. Is there a cure? <laughs> no, not cure. <laughs> mm, but it's fun, isn't it? Aren't you having fun with me, Dana? I mean, I wish I had ADD. I've always wished that I did. did. I'm exactly the opposite. Um, you know, my ADD is showing, but your sarcasm is really showing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm going to get back on task. I can't promise I'll stay there, but... So, back to my dad, the Vietnam veteran. He was never really active in the church. My mom grew up very active in the church. And my dad, when he came home from the war, was with PTSD. He was uh, kind of self-medicated a little bit with, with alcohol and golf. And was not home a lot, but... Um, one of my earliest memories is that we had a swimming pool in our backyard. I remember feeling safe at that time. My dad, uh, I guess at one time he had his legs off and I went out in the backyard before I was even two years old, maybe, maybe a little over two years old, and I got in the pool by myself and my dad came out there without his legs on and rescued me. Um, so I know that my parents cared about me. Uh, my parents had kind of a tumultuous relationship with each other. Um, I know there were a lot of arguments with each other. Our family moved to Maryland in 1979. Uh, we only lived there for about a year, maybe a little less than a year. And then we moved to Colorado. Uh, in Colorado, uh, we lived there for about six years until my parents got divorced. And then in July of 1986, my mom had been divorced from my dad for just a short amount of time. And then she went to a single adult dance at the church where she met my stepdad, who was a member of the church and who apparently held the priesthood and was quite cunning and charming and lied to her about his worthiness in the church and he um, proposed to my mom and was able to get a temple recommend the night before he took my mom to the temple uh, which he had to beg for from his stake president and um, somehow he was able to get that temple recommend the night before they got married and he took my mom to the temple and something that I really struggle with is that during my years of growing up in the church I had been told that the word of wisdom was really important and that my my dad was not a good person because he drank alcohol and my dad didn't go to church and so despite the fact that my dad was a war hero that he lost both of his legs for his country and that he lost both of his legs trying to save the lives of two or three men that were um, in the war with him he was viewed as not a good person in the church because he drank alcohol and he didn't go to church on Sunday but this man yeah. who was lying to my mom, who didn't pay child support for his other five children, who abandoned his five children in Washington State, 
and who was really just overall not a good person and who did terrible things to me and I believe who did terrible things to other little girls was a good person because he took my mom to the temple and he was able to get a temple recommend and he held the priesthood and he went to church every Sunday. So I really struggle with that. So I really liked him at first because he gave me a lot of attention. I was the youngest child of, of four children. I was younger than my older brother by three years. And I was the annoying little girl. I was the annoying little kid in my family. And so he paid attention to me. And he would play with me. And, and he would tickle me. Um, and to this day, I absolutely despise being tickled because of him and yeah yeah <laughs> and uh he would jump on the trampoline with us and this all lasted until maybe the first couple weeks that he was married to my mom and then after he married my mom suddenly he didn't have a job anymore and he would start up these quick get rich quick businesses like uh, Amway and Sandy's Nuts and Fruits and these weird like little oh Melaleuca these little um, multi-level marketing companies but he would never like work the business is what he would call it he would turn them over to my mom who was working full-time as a wallpaper hanger and he would tell her oh this needs a woman's touch and then he would sit on his ass and do nothing. But it also yeah. guaranteed, yeah, it also guaranteed that he was home and had full access to me while my mom was so busy working all day long and then coming home and going and picking up product pickup for Amway or making sure that she didn't waste the money that he spent on these things so that she would work these businesses that he would put all this money into that she was earning. And then he would never have a job. And so she was supporting not just us kids, but she was supporting this deadbeat that wouldn't pay child support, which was a reason probably he didn't have a job because they would start garnishing his wages and he would have access to me. So a couple of things that I remember that are really vivid for me um, were one that when we lived in the house that I grew up in up until I was eight, uh, he, well first my, my dad when my mom married him. My dad sold the house that we lived in because she, my mom married this guy and he wasn't going to pay the mortgage on this house anymore um, because my mom married him. And so we moved down the street and started renting a house down the street. And my mom realized pretty quickly that he would disappear in the middle of the night. 
and he would, she would go to try to find him, and he would be maybe downstairs getting a drink of water, but he would just disappear in the middle of the night. And she just kind of found that odd. And then one day she came home from hanging wallpaper and it was somewhat unexpected that she was home early. And she found that he was in my room with the door closed on my bed. And when she opened the door, he jumped about a mile high. And I don't remember what she said she asked him, but just the reaction that he gave her was enough to set off alarm bells in her head. And she had asked a friend of hers who was a foster mother what she should do about this. Like, she was concerned about his behavior. And this was within, like, six months of them being married. And this foster mother, who was obviously aware of concerning behaviors because she was taking care of foster kids and had been educated in these, these concerns because she was taking care of foster kids. So foster kids often come with these types of, um, come, come from these types of families where they have been abused. She told my mom to just keep an eye on him. And so my mom kept an eye on him. But my mom had concerns within six months of her marrying him. And so that, that bothers me about, about my mom. But I know also that this man that my mom married, my stepdad, was very manipulative and very cunning. And so I've, my mom and I have repaired our relationship since then. But it still makes me really sad that she could have found, she could have figured that out early. She could have listened to her gut. And so I guess that's something that I think should be discussed, is that when, when you have a gut instinct, when you see something that just doesn't feel right, if you are concerned that your child is at risk, if you see this behavior that doesn't look right, doesn't feel right, there's something that's just not right, you need to listen to your gut. One thing that I've noticed is that when there's a story of abuse, nobody can really wrap their mind around it. We don't want to even suspect that that's happening. And so sometimes people will try to turn the story into something else. They, they won't even consider it. They'll give themselves all kinds of reasons for why it, why it can be something else. I don't think that people naturally go to the assumption of my child is being sexually abused. I think sometimes that takes, it can take people a while to, to come to that place. I would hope that people would be looking out for their kids more and be worrying about that, especially if there's, you know, 
a step parent or something like that in the family, but it doesn't even have to be a step parent. It's often our, our close family friends, a close family member. It's people that we would never, ever suspect. So sometimes it's easy to put, put uh, blame on, on people who should have known or they should have, they should have suspected, they should have seen it. We all wish that we had seen it. We all should have known. But sometimes we, we just don't because our brain is trying to make sense of something that's happening that doesn't make sense. But we need to realize that the statistics tell us that it's more often than not somebody that we wouldn't suspect in the family. It's someone that, that we're close to, someone who's the life of the party, someone who is a friend, someone that we never would suspect. Otherwise, we wouldn't give them access to our children. We don't go around handing our children off to strangers that we think might molest them. We, we typically only give people access to our children who we already trust. So I, I think it makes sense that your, your mom didn't put two and two together. After the fact, we can always go back and say, well, I should have noticed this or I should have noticed that. But that's what the problem is with this thing, is that it happens because a situation of trust has already been established. Yeah, it's true. It is true. And I, and I guess I'm, I'm pointing out that my mom did notice. She did have concern. And she did take it to her friend within six months of being married to him. And she could have listened to her gut at that time. And she chose not to, you know. And she chose not to because she was doing what you said. You know, she's making reasons for it not to be that because she wanted to trust him. But I think also what we need to consider is that he was Mormon. He was trustworthy. He had a temple recommend. He took her to the temple. He held the priesthood. And these were things that my mom desperately wanted. These were things that my mom did not have with my dad. And this is something that I think it, a value is placed on in the church and that value is placed on holding the priesthood or having a priesthood member in the home over safety. So over having my biological father who was a safe person for the most part, you know, he was not molesting me. He had my best interests in mind. He provided for our family. And he was a much safer person than somebody who was seeing me as a sex object. So Kendra, let me ask you this. Do you feel like your parents got divorced because your dad wasn't quote, quote, worthy? Was, was your mom, was she actively looking for this priesthood holder as a church thing? Or, 
or were there other issues that your parents got divorced over? Oh, no. My, uh, my dad was actually not faithful to my mom. Uh, I think it was partially because my dad was suffering from PTSD. You know, he also had lost both of his legs in Vietnam and probably felt like he was unattractive and wondered if women found him attractive still. Uh, so I think both of them had their issues that they were dealing with. I think my mom was wanting to have a priesthood holder in the home, um, but I think she felt betrayed. And because they were getting a divorce, she saw that as an opportunity to find someone who was a priesthood holder. But I think she felt um, very vulnerable. And I think that my stepdad saw her vulnerability and took advantage of it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, moving forward in the same house that we were living in, that we were renting, uh, there were a few key moments in this house that were important for me. One was that, so my sister was seven years older than me. And she and I, you know, we, we didn't have a great relationship. I think something that um, I had a hard time with with my sister was that our relationship was based on if I do this for you, then you'll, I'll, if, I'm sorry, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. So basically, if you go get me a drink of water and tickle my back for 15 minutes, then you can sleep in my bed, um, which is what I would ask to do. I wanted to sleep in her bed because if I slept in her bed, then I was safe from my stepdad. And she didn't know what was going on. You know, she was oblivious to what was happening. And... I think, I think if she knew, she probably would have tried to protect me. Um, but she also didn't want me sleeping in her bed because I was wetting the bed. I wet the bed until I was 13, which, by the way, is also when my stepdad moved out of the house. I felt betrayed by her because of that, but um, again, I don't necessarily blame her because she didn't know. Let me ask you this, Kendra. Um... I, I know that different abuse survivors need different things when they come forward. And are, are you comfortable talking about some of the actual things that your stepdad would do? Um, we've talked about how your mother came in and, and saw that he was behind closed doors with you. And that you wanted to, to sleep with your sister and have that sense of security. And um, th those are really important things, I think. And I'm wondering if, if for you, if it's comfortable for you to talk about some of the individual things that he did, some of your memories of, of things that he did? Um, it's, it's comfortable for me. I, 
I've been working with a counselor. I still am working with a counselor. I, um, I've been in counseling off and on throughout my life. Uh, I started working with a, a counselor about, um, it's been over a year ago to start working on uh, EMDR. Uh, it's eye, eye movement desensitization reprocessing to reprocess memories because there's there's a book it's called the body keeps the score and in my body I have body memories so when I was a child I would get UTIs I was taken to urologist multiple times and I do have certain memories that um that I vividly remember and I have memories that um, have come up since I've been reprocessing that are that are body memories and I have memories that are uh, triggered by sexual intercourse or sexual activity with my husband and that are traumatizing they're they're flashbacks and um, it's difficult to talk about at times, but, um, but there's a lot of things about the time between the age of eight and 13 that I don't remember. And that's hard for me because I, I want to remember the good times. I don't necessarily want to remember the abuse. Um, but I do remember that he, used his fingers um, in my vagina and he did so on more than one occasion and I don't remember how many times and I know that my my brother on one occasion um, when we lived in the other house uh, or this townhouse that we lived in after this house he had a bad feeling, um, and he stood guard at my door. He left his door open and stood guard at my door. Um, I can't remember the exact story he, he told me, but he, he just had a terrible feeling that he needed to watch after me. He, he, stood, at, yeah. he stood guard. And um, so there's that and, and the idea of being tickled. Um, there was an, a time where, a specific time that I remember that I tried to get in my mom my mom's car. Um, it was a Dodge Caravan. It was a, a, a blue Dodge Caravan. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's what car it was. Um, and it was, I don't remember what my mom and my sister were going to do. I don't, I don't know where my brother was. I don't think he was going with my mom. But I was told that I couldn't go, which meant that I was being left home alone with my stepdad. And I was terrified. And I went out and I got in the van and I hid behind the passenger seat, uh, the front passenger seat. And I just, I hid there. And my mom and my sister came out and got in the car and she yelled at me and told me I had to go back inside and I wasn't allowed to come with them. And so I ended up going back inside and I cried and I cried and I ended up sitting in the, in the living room 
and I remember these ugly couches that we had and I think that they were my stepdad's or something because they weren't my mom's taste and they had the they had wooden handles and this ugly orange and brown upholstery and uh, I went inside and I sat down and I was watching TV and in comes my stepdad he turns off the TV and he wants to tickle me and play with me and be fun and silly. And I hated him at this time. I knew what he was about. And he wouldn't leave me alone, even though I kept telling him no and telling him to leave me alone. And I would scream at him. And he got me down on the ground. And he's all having fun and being silly and thinks he's just the greatest. And he had me on the ground. And he had a heart on. And he was grinding on me and tickling me and his tickling was groping and he was groping underneath yeah. my armpits and he was groping across my chest and I'm a 10 year old little girl he was groping across my chest he was groping in my groin um tickling right up up at the very top of my thighs in the front and in the back right underneath my butt just grabbing and tickling and of course you know I'm ticklish I'm a little girl so I'm laughing but I'm angry and I'm screaming so I'm laughing because you know I'm squirming because it's ticklish but and he thinks that that's funny and In the process, he has a hard-on and he's grinding against my leg. So I just wanted to interject something here because I think it's important for a lot of our listeners. Um, There's, I know that for me in my story, as I was growing up, I always felt like maybe my story wasn't good enough because there wasn't the element of a penis inside of a vagina and an actual intercourse event. And so I was made to feel like my, like he didn't really do it. Like, cause he didn't go all the way or, you know, he, his, his, penis didn't enter my vagina and so therefore it was somehow uh, an event that was less than or didn't quite count or that I should uh, I should feel like I was overreacting that maybe it it wasn't bad enough Um, and I know that even within my own victims group when we came forward as a group of nine of us we, we had varying stories of different types of contact and different kinds of abuse that Tom would perpetrate on us. And, but the overwhelming sense of every single one of us was a sense of guilt that it wasn't, it wasn't technically bad enough or um, we didn't get to be as mad as other people because there was no actual penetration uh, with, with his penis. And I just want to make the point here, because you and I have talked about this together, that, that sometimes we're hesitant to tell or talk about what happened because, because we didn't have the actual intercourse, 
but it still counts, right? It's Absolutely. Still, it, it still counts. It's still a, a violation. It's, it's still crossing that line. It's still sexual abuse. Absolutely. So, um, actually, you know, I, this is probably going to be a little bit out of order, but when you, um, when you filed your case with the police, do you have your police report? Yes. What did your police report state that the crime was? My, my charges were going to be aggravated. Let me see. Aggravated. Now my brain went blank. Aggravated forcible sodomy on a child. Okay. And that came with a 25-year penalty, by the way. Mm -hmm. 25 years. So for me, I always thought, well, it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, he, there was no intercourse. But the charges, it was a first-degree felony. And the man, if had he been convicted, he it would have been a mandatory 25 years, according to what the law states today. Right. So when we think about, oh, it's not bad enough, right? It's not bad enough. It's not, you know, it's not sexual intercourse. Well, anything penetrating the vagina of a child from an adult is rape. Yes. And it can be object rape. Mm -hmm. It can be sodomy, which is anything that is done with the mouth or the anus. Mm -hmm. um, yes, absolutely. And then there's additional charges that they put on top of that as far as like the aggravated, in my case, came from the fact that Tom was a, a trusted member of the, a fa the family. So I should have had an expectation of trust with him. Um, so yeah, yeah, definitely. People need to realize that these things come with some hefty penalties. And sometimes when you go forward with the, to the police and you go through your process, you're told what the actual charges would be. It's a validation where suddenly someone's telling you that it's a lot more serious than you thought. Yeah. And in my case, there were, uh, three and possibly four charges that they were going to, they were going to try to charge him with. And three out of the four came with a 25 year minimum mandatory sentence. So in my case alone, if we could have prosecuted it and we had been successful, he could have got up to 75 years. The police report that I filed against my stepdad was filed by me in October of 2018. The charges would have been aggravated incest and forcible rape. It is more than just a little thing. Yeah, we need to sort of get that idea out of our head that it only counts if, if there's a penis that goes into a vagina. Because another thing is we know that this happens with boys too. They don't have a vagina, right? Right. So, so it, we need to sort of get that get out of that mindset and um, stop beating ourselves up or telling ourselves that it just, you know, it's just not that big of a deal and you should just let it go because that, that's not true. The yes. law these days recognizes it. 
Now, maybe the laws back in in the 80s when when it happened with me, that there were no laws on the books at all about child sexual assault. But there are today. The law recognizes the law recognizes these things. So we we need everybody to know that 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 if if you're somebody who believes that your story just it's not as bad as somebody else's, don't don't compare yourself to somebody else because once you yourself has been violated, you have been violated. Yeah. Period. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter to the to the extent. Now, of course, one thing I always said is there there's people who have way worse stories than me. You know, there's there's people who have to go through this for years and years and years and my event only happened the the one single time. So it doesn't matter if it happened one single time or if it happened over years and years and years. The the effect of the abuse is a lifetime sentence. Right. So the lifetime right. sentence for the the victim, it should be a lifetime sentence for the abuser. That's my opinion. If I have to suffer for the rest of my life because of some choice that my stepdad made, whether it was one time or every day from the time that I was nine until I was 13, or a few days from the time I was nine till I was 13, then he should have a life sentence for the things that he did, the choices that he made to make it so that I have to suffer for the rest of my life. And I will play maybe a little bit of a devil's advocate here. I agree with you on one level. But on the other level, I appreciate that the law has created um, mandatory sentences for certain things. Um, I think that someone who's been raped repeatedly by their father, something like that, I, I, I personally would have been okay for Tom to get 25 years. That was crazy. I couldn't even, I had no idea that it came with 25 years, with a 25 year sentence. Now, if he was someone who continuously raped me and he got consecutive 25-year sentences, I think that would be appropriate in, from, as far as my opinion goes. But, but we can hold, you and I can hold different opinions on that and have them both be valid. We both feel like we suffer for the rest of our lives with this, although I think you know, I don't want to discourage anyone to think that they have to live in misery forever because they don't, there's help, there's things we can do, but, but it, it did change the trajectory of our lives. We would have been different people had this not happened to us. That's, that's for sure. Right. And to have the penalties match the crime, I think is a fantastic thing that we're seeing now. However, I do think that you know, there's some ways to go with the law. Um, definitely need to remove the statutes of limitations on some of the things because, because, um, I know in my case that, um, the statute of limitations had run out for some of the victims. And, and then for me, there was the complication because it was so old. So there still needs to be work on the laws, but the laws as they stand today are, are, a big improvement to what they were 
you know, when you and I probably would have first reported this to somebody in our family. Yeah, I agree. And I'm not saying a life sentence in jail. I'm saying yeah. a life sentence as a sex offender. You know, they maybe will serve 25 years or 10 years or however long they'll serve in jail. And, and jail or prison is not really friendly to pedophiles. Um, they may become somebody's wife in prison. Yeah, it can be really ugly. It can for be. sure. It can be. Um, and, you know, not that that's what I'm wishing for to happen, um, because that, you know, I, I don't necessarily want um, revenge, but I think justice is something that is necessary. And I think we, we talked about this on our, our last podcast, that as, a, as someone who has, has acted on their impulses, they need help. When they've acted on those impulses, they are someone who needs to have therapy, just like somebody who has been abused. You know, I think we, we talked about, um, I think I said something about uh, when they have acted on those impulses, they're likely to act, uh, act again. So people who are convicted of abuse, we know if they're put in therapy and put on a sex offenders list and monitored, maybe we can determine if they're going to act on their impulses again. But somebody who has never been turned in to the police, how do we know if they're acting out again, if they're, how many children they've abused? If they act on their impulses one time, are they gonna act on their impulses multiple times because they've never been caught? My opinion is that my stepdad, once he acted on his impulses, that he became much more dangerous because he needed to escalate it to get the same feeling that he got every time that he acted on those impulses. Right. The other things that I remember uh, from that house was that I was suicidal. Um, I wrote a note to my mom that uh, one of the times that I was taken for a urology procedure that I hoped that I would die. And there was a specific note that I had written that I still have. I still have the copy of that note, or I still have the specific note. And it was when I was uh, 10 years old. And it's really sad. It's really sad to read this note that the journals that I wrote before that were this happy child. And then after this note, you can see the change in me. You can see the change in my demeanor in my, in my journals. And then we ended up moving to a townhouse because we couldn't afford a house anymore because my stepdad wasn't working. And when we lived in this townhouse, these ugly couches that I was just describing were moved down to the basement. And I don't remember a whole lot about my life in this house except that I was starting, I, ha I was in junior high school and then I was going to be starting high school soon and it was around when I was 13 and I was in the basement, it was 
I think it was a Saturday morning. I was watching cartoons. I was in my pajamas and he comes downstairs, which is where his old, I believe it was a Tandy computer, like a DOS-based computer. And he would spend all day yeah. downstairs on his computer um, watching DOS-based porn, I'm sure. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> what does that look like? <laughs> I know, right? Numbers. Oh. <laughs> And uh, he comes downstairs and he sits like right next to me and he wasted no time to put his hand up my shirt, grab my boob and say, oh, you're getting boobs. So underneath my shirt. That's terrible. And I, you know, I'm frozen. I'm a 13 year old watching Tom and Jerry or some other 90s cartoon, 80s or 90s cartoons, because they're only on on Saturdays, right? I'm pretty sure that was the only day cartoons yeah. were on at that time. I'm in my pajamas, a 13-year-old kid, getting boobs. Nobody's talking to me about puberty at that time. I'm a Mormon, and the purity culture and shame-based culture, I was just barely in young women's and we're being told at that time that masturbation is a sin, fornication is the sin next to murder, keep yourself pure for your husband and what is he doing to me? He's making me impure. Yes. I have no hope of being pure. Yeah. And you don't have any control either. You didn't choose it. Mm -mm. So I told my mom, um, and I'm quite sure I told her that very day, and I have a journal entry that proves it, and she didn't believe me. Yes. And I have it written in my journal that she didn't believe me. When I told my I mom about it. I have it right here, opened. Huh? I have your journal entry right here, opened on my phone, Yeah. actually. Yeah, what does it say? Um, let me back up. It says January 10th, 1991. It, it, you're writing to someone in your journal. It's my sister. Who is it? Okay. So I used to choose so somebody. I used to choose somebody to write to, whether it was like a best friend. It was some, um, I think I was told this in, in Young Women's. If you choose somebody like you're writing to a friend, it's a little bit easier to write a journal. And so I, I tried it that way. So it helped me to write. Do you want me to read it? Sure. Because my sister was away at college at that time. Okay. I won't, I won't use her name. It says, Dear Sister, I miss you. I want to live with Dad. Mom doesn't believe me that our stepdad touched my breast. And I, I told him not to, 
but he just did it again and again. He got mad at me for supposedly sassing him. What a jerk. I love my dad. I don't love Ron. Always Kendra. Yep. Yeah. It's been interesting going back and reading through all of my journals um, because I can see all the things that I did to get away from him. So I was the, like, I was the best babysitter and I would choose to babysit people's kids in the ward for free. I would, I would babysit every single night of the week if I could just to be away from my house. Um, so people called me all the time and I would have, <laughs> I had this, I had this box that had like a handle in the middle and two sides. It was a cardboard box and I made like this babysitting box and I would read these books. They were babysitter club books and I would um, babysit everybody's kids. It was the way that I would get out of the house. It was the only way I could escape. And it was either that or I would invite myself to people's houses to spend the night. And did that too. Yeah. So friends, I'm sure got so tired of me inviting myself to their house to spend that to spend the night. Um but I was trying to escape. I was trying to escape my house. I was trying to escape spending the night in my own bedroom. Besides the sexual abuse with my stepdad, he was also emotionally and psychologically abusive. Um, he would chase me up the stairs and like spank me as I was running up the stairs. Uh, he was intimidating. He would say things like, nobody's gonna believe a stupid little girl. He knew how to make people believe him and not believe me. He knew how to make my mom believe him and not believe me. He knew how to make my mom believe him and not believe my brother or not believe my sister before she left for school. My oldest brother opted to live with my dad and that was a huge loss for me because my oldest brother was kind of like the father figure in our house when my dad was golfing and drinking and not really emotionally available. Do you mind if I read you this next journal entry that you have here? No, that's fine. Go ahead. Okay, so the last one was uh, dated January 10th, and this one is January 21st, so 11 days later. And again, you're writing to your sister, and you say, Dear sister, I'm still real mad at Ron, and I always will be. Don't let the devil and bad doings of others affect your own self-righteousness. If it's hard to be righteous because of the devil, then pray. The Lord is always there. You never get a bit busy signal. Don't wish people dead. Wish them righteous. Help them. Don't hurt them. Stay in the circle that targets the church activeness. Let others even after, or sorry, love others even after their faults. Love, Kendra. Hmm. Do you remember those, um, those things called Mormon ads? 
They would be in the new era, I think. No. So they were like a, a picture of a person, and there was one that, that somebody would like paint themselves in a corner. They were kind of symbolic, and um, it would be like, so the one that I was quoting there was, uh, there was a phone, and uh, it would say, it was said, um, you can always pray, and then at the bottom it would say, you never get a busy signal. So I was quoting a Mormon ad there. Yeah. Um, so I had those Mormon ads all over my room. I had everything that I could that was like Mormon stuff. You know, I would I would get yeah. things to try to help me to to be good because I felt like I had no hope. Uh, I was drowning. Yeah. And I think he was dunking me under. Yeah. You say, don't wish people dead. Wish them righteous. Yeah. Help them. Don't hurt them. And then you say, stay in the circle. Yeah. Stay in the circle that targets the church. I just think that's really interesting because it's sort of like, you're expressing that you're still mad at him, but you're giving yourself the church speak of, of how you're supposed to handle this, which is the whole forgiveness thing. Don't wish that they're dead. Wish that they're righteous. Help them. Don't hurt them. If, if we have the church as our target, then we need to try to stay in the circle, be active in church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you say, love others even after their faults. So you're sort of giving yourself a little church-speak pep talk here yep. that I find really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yep. I'm sure that that was probably, well, how many days between the two journal entries? There's 11 days. Mm-hmm. So how many people did I probably tell in those 11 days that wanted me to just let it go? Yeah. So eventually my mom did have him move out. Did she have him leave because, because of what was happening with you or did they, their relationship eventually disintegrate and that's why he left? Well, um, it took a little while for him to move out. So Ron touched my boob in January of 1991. He didn't leave until December of 1991. Okay. So he was still living with us for until December of 1991. But did did this contribute to the downfall of their relationship or was there other out or was it the job, the job situation where he wasn't working or do you feel like it was a combination of all of the things together? I think it was the straw that broke, that broke the camel's back. I think him, him uh, molesting me was the straw that broke the camel's back. It should have been the thing. 
should have been the only thing. Um, okay. But I think it was the, it was the end. That was the end. So at this point, you have told your mom that Ron's touch it, touched your boob. Have you told her any of the other things, or is that all that she knows at this point? Besides the story where she came home and found him behind closed doors with you. I think that that was all that I had told her. I don't think that I had told her anything else. I don't think I remembered anything else at that time. Oh, so there was something else that added to the reason that he left and actually was the, the time that he left was in December of 1991. Uh, he received a letter from the DA um, that he owed child support and he left for Houston, Texas. Um, he took all of his clothes. He took my mom's car. He took a computer and a printer and he didn't have contact with my mom for 30 days. And this was after my mom also had confronted him about um, touching my breast. Um, but, you know, he, he did that in January of 1991. So I'm not sure why the big length of time between January and December, um, if my mom and him were trying to work things out. Um, but then in June of 1992, he came back, but he didn't get to move back in. Um, so he took the Toyota again and he didn't make any payments on the car. So my mom ended up having to hire a private investigator to figure out where he was. And um, she ended up finding him and she went and picked up his car or her car because the car was in her name um, in I guess it was October of 1992, when she picked up the car, I guess he was at some like multi-level marketing convention, but he was there with another woman and um, her, car, her purse was in his car and there was a card in the glove box from another woman um, that I guess my stepdad had been dating or something and it was just kind of a disaster. Anyway, my mom took the car with, I guess, the help of the police and just left the, I guess she left the purse with the, with the police. I don't know if she had to drive it to the police station, but she took off with the car. And I don't remember exactly what happened after that. Um, but my stepdad ended up charging $82 to my mom's credit card even after that. And um, then my mom divorced him in March of 1993. So then in December of 1993, um, he had a bishop's court in the ward that he was attending and where he was excommunicated. My mom wrote a statement and I wrote a statement and both of those were notarized and sent to Utah where he was attending church. And I think also his, the wife that he married after my mom and divorced quickly. And his first wife may have written a statement also because he was, had never paid child support. Um, all contributed to his excommunication, but I think the, 
nail in his coffin, so to speak, was my uh, statement that he had molested me as a child. And in my statement, do you have my statement? I think I mailed it or emailed it to you and it said something about me wanting him to be convicted or to be turned into the police or something. Is that the 1993 document? Yeah, it's at the very end. Um, there's a part at the very end. Do you want to read it? I don't have it in front of me. Sure. It says, I will never feel safe in my home again after letting these facts out in the open because I have always been afraid of Ron. Please help my childhood fears to subside and convict Ron of what he has done to me so that he doesn't do this to anyone else. I didn't want anyone else to have to experience this kind of unpleasant experience, especially since Ron can take advantage of people who don't know any better and think that since he is older and bigger than them, that they don't know how or if they should have the right to defend themselves. Sincerely, Kendra. Yeah. So that was the last time we ever had anything to do with Ron or that I ever heard from us having anything to do with him and I didn't have any any contact with him again I went through some counseling I was a very rebellious teenager and I went through a lot of counseling with my mom um, and gave her kind of a hard time this is a good place to end right here for this part of Kendra's story we hope that you will tune in next time for part two, where Kendra is going to tell us how the church got involved and how ultimately they ended up re-victimizing her. We also want to tell you that we are so grateful for all the listeners that we've had, the amount of downloads and response that we've had to our podcast has been phenomenal, and we thank you so much for all of that support. We also wanted to remind you that we do have a blog and we're trying to add things to it as often as we can. We are even going to be working on having survivors contribute their stories to our blog as well. And so we really hope that you will check out our website at latterdaysurvivors.org and like our page on Facebook at Latter Day Survivors. Thank you and we hope to have you guys join us next time.
all the life you've tried To be a good man inside Did everything that you thought you should Did it seem to do you any good? Opportunity to tell my story, I'm gonna freaking tell it. <laughs> 